I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. In 2008, I began working on a still unfinished documentary. If you've ever worked in documentary film, you know how that goes. The subject matter for the documentary was to tell the stories of everyday black women who'd lived through the civil rights era, to have a history of of those who knew a world with no civil rights acts, who witnessed Malcolm and Martin, John Lewis, Sandra Young, Fannie Lou Hammer and others as they came into their own, who could tell us the uncommon parts of history. Through the pandemic, I had a chance to go through some of the interviews and re-listen to the stories that I'd collected. While I'm still working to complete the documentary in its visual format, I've decided to share some of the stories here as personal narratives as a way of giving context to the discussion around racism and its impacts. The first narrative will be of Mary Hudson, my mother. My mother was born in August of 1953, and when we think about the civil rights movement, this is still very early on. Though when you think about history, it's not that long ago. You'd be surprised by some of the things she experienced in her life. But um, as a child, I picked cotton. And um, we, had, we lived on a farm, you know, and uh, we had corn, we had cotton, potatoes, we had a garden. What we ate, we had the farm in order to eat. And um, picking cotton was not my favorite thing to do because it was... Uh, you know, you had if you didn't wear the right gloves or whatever, your hands got all sticky and everything, and uh, in the hot sun, and um, I didn't pick that much. We cheated. We put watermelons and things in the bottom of the bag to make it seem like we picked a lot, but we had to go right back out there the next day and do it again. But <laughs> but it's something that I did. It was a part of my life at that time. It was something I, I had to do it, you know, so I did it, you know. But um, that was what life was back then, you know, and uh, I think about it myself, you know, when I tell people that I pick cotton, you know, they look at me like you're not that old, how can you do that? It was a part of my life at that time, so. She was still crawling when Brown versus the Board of Education was won and was supposed to end segregation in schools. She was two years old when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. She just turned four when the Little Rock Nine were denied access to Central High School in Arkansas. When she was six years old, the sit-ins were happening in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Ruby Bridges had to be escorted by federal marshals as she integrated William France Elementary School in New Orleans. When she was nine, Governor George C. Wallace, her governor, blocked two black students from registering at the University of Alabama. I think it was a good effort. And in some cases, in some places, I think it worked. But when you have uh, 
politicians, governors of uh, states like the governor of Alabama, George Wallace saying that segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, it was like, you know, what are we fighting for? You know, we're fighting to try and change things, but you have people like him standing up saying it's never going to happen. And he did everything he could legally and not legally to make sure that Alabama was not segregated. And uh, so it took a long time. And we're in some cases, we're still not there. And the day before her 10th birthday, 250,000 people descended on Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington. Two weeks later, for reasons unknown to Mary, her mother, my grandmother, decided not to go to church one Sunday morning. I was also in Birmingham when that happened. Um, my mother was, we were living there and we lived maybe, I'm thinking maybe three or four blocks from that church. I had attended that church one or two times. And the Sunday that it happened, um, we didn't go to church that Sunday. I don't know if it was God's will that, you know, we didn't go. But uh, it was very sad to know that we were, that black people in general was hated that much, that they would bomb a church on Sunday morning when they knew that it would, you know, people would be there. I just, that just hurt me. 11 months later, Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And at the age of 11, 50 miles from her home, Bloody Sunday takes place in Selma. In the fall of that year, Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act of 1965. At 14 years old, she found out that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. When Martin Luther King was killed, I felt like I had lost a member of my family because I had followed, his, uh, followed him for as long as I can remember from reading the newspaper and because uh, black history wasn't taught in schools back then. So everything I knew, I knew from reading the newspaper and watching TV. And um, the day that he was killed, I was, um, my grandfather was in the hospital in Thomasville, Alabama. And I remember we were in his, in his hospital room and it, the news came on and said that uh, Martin Luther King had been killed. And uh, I felt like I had lost an uncle. It hurt just that bad. The world in general, I think, were just devastated because a lot of people, uh, the black culture, I think, felt that Martin Luther King was their way out of slavery, bondage, you know, as far as saving us from all the things that was going on around us, from us being mistreated as black people. And when King was killed, uh, a lot of people felt that his dream died with him. A week later, Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1968. To say that she grew up or survived through the Civil Rights Movement is putting it lightly. 1968 is effectively known as the end of the Civil Rights Era. We have two Civil Rights Acts, the Voting Rights Act, and Brown v. Board of Education. In 14 years. Go team! The problem is that the events and acts of this era may have been written down and signed in rooms of highly dignified people, but in the real world, where real people live, these changes didn't take hold for years or decades. 
And while they may have changed the laws, they didn't change people. I was always afraid because I had seen uh, in newspaper clippings of, you know, what the Klan had did to uh, people and uh, seen pictures of them and to know that these were lawyers, judges, sometimes ministers, you know, who are supposed to be upholding the right and uh, that they were out at night dressed like this, burning crosses and hanging people and killing people. It, uh, it was very scary. It never, um, I don't remember it happening to us and you know, where I lived in Pine Hill, but um, I know here in Fort Wayne, <laughs> this one church that I went to, uh, Reverend AC, I remember a cross being burned in his yard. And that was like in 80, 1981, you know, and uh, that's, that was sad, but, and also scary. Often when we look back on the civil rights movement and think of the black and white photos of white only signs and segregated bathrooms, we tend to put a lot of distance between now and then. But in reality, our parents and grandparents lived through the struggles and tension of this not so distant past. I don't, well, that was, that was tension, but we were never, uh, we wasn't raised to say, well, this person's white, this person's better than you or whatever. We were just raised to respect everybody. And when we went to, in town, as you want to call it, to shop or whatever, we had to address the white people as yes, sir, yes, ma'am, Mr. This, Mr. That, you know, and uh, wait your turn to be waited on whether anyone else was in the store or not. And I didn't think that was right. And I got reprimanded for it. I want to say I was in seventh or eighth grade. My mom gave me money to go buy me a pair of shoes and um, this little grocery store that sold everything that we were in every week. And they knew who I was and they would not wait on me. And I sat there for an hour or longer and this white lady comes in, she gets waited on, she tries on shoes and everything's hunky-dory and they just leave me sitting there. So I got up and got the shoes myself, and uh, that was not the right thing to do. <laughs> the little old lady came back and chewed me out. She didn't call me any names or anything. She just told me that I was out of my place, that uh, I should wait, you know. And I'm like, do I wait all day? Nobody's back here. I'm the only one here. And uh, she said she was going to tell my grandfather that I was being disrespectful and sassy. And because I tried the shoe on, even though the size I got didn't fit, I had to buy it because it was considered tainted because a black person had had it on. So that made me really angry because to me, I'm human. I'm a, I'm a human being just like you are. And the only reason you're treating me this way is because of the color of my skin. While marching and protesting segregation and education inequalities, my mother had hoses turned on her and was jailed in the early 70s. 17 years after Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, the first school I went to was great. It was uh, Animania, Alabama. Uh, my mother and pretty much everybody else, older our parents, went to that same school. But that school was closed, I want to say, in the late 60s. And uh, then they built a school in Pine Hill. Uh, but it was, uh, wasn't large enough for all of the kids because all of the kids in the surrounding area had to go to that school. So we had overcrowding. 
And that was a white school there, but only white kids was allowed to go to it. And we were not allowed to go there. So um, a lot of kids didn't go to school, dropped out of school because of that. But um, as a result of not being able to attend this white school, uh, the school was burnt down. I don't know who did it. The uh, rumor was it that the whites burned it down so that we wouldn't go. They couldn't go there. And uh, as a result of that, in 1970, fall of 71, uh, the students in that area, black students and teachers, uh, decided to boycott the schools and uh, march for the right to go to school wherever you wanted to because the segregation was supposed to be over with. But in the South at that time, especially Alabama, uh, they refused to abide by the law. Who, who's that? Uh, the George Wallace, who was the governor, uh, was very adamant. He turned around uh, students at the University of Alabama. He refused to let them go. The black students entered the building. Um, two kids that I went to, I think they graduated a year before me in high school, but um, they were turned around. They were not allowed, and this was in the early 70s, and they were not allowed to go to the University of Alabama. And I did the football coach. I believe Bear Bryant said that a black, well, he didn't use that word, would never be a quarterback at the University of Alabama. So racism was alive and well, even into the 70s. Every day, um, we got on school buses and went to Camden, Alabama, which was the county seat for Wilcox County. And uh, we boycotted stores. We marched, tried to march to the courthouse. And each day we tried, we got turned around. And... uh, this went on for probably about two months, maybe. And finally, um, the Thursday before the arrest was made, they told us if we went to the courthouse or attempted to go to the courthouse that we would be put in jail. So that Friday, uh, about 300 uh, people, including myself, was arrested and taken to jail for attempting to march to the courthouse. And the purpose of going to the courthouse was to voice our opinions about the schools and everything else that was going on. And uh, so they locked us up and put us in jail. And uh, so I was in jail from Friday to Monday. Terrifying, because the guy who was uh, our leader, Jose Williams, who marched with uh, Dr. King, uh, they told us they had killed him. And it was probably, I want to say maybe about 300 people. And they had the females on one side and the men on the other side. And uh, we sang freedom songs, We Shall Overcome. And they told us if we didn't be quiet, they was going to do this to us and that to us. And uh, it was a horrible experience. I didn't sleep for three days and I didn't eat for three days. Because I was afraid that they was going to put something in the food to kill us. Because I really believe when they said Jose Williams was dead that they had killed him. And our parents, they they would let us out during the day into this like open yard in the back. And our parents would come over and visit and they would bring us crackers and water or something to drink. And that was the food that I ate during that time period. And so how did you all eventually get out? Uh, on Monday, they finally let us out. We went to court. Uh, there's no record of it, uh, which I just found out, because basically it was done illegally. They gave us a tablet where we had to write our name and age and address on it. And... Uh, for some reason, those records can't be found. But uh, it was a part of history, and it did happen. The problem is that we, as a society, refuse to learn. We continue to fight the same problems. Remember, the bulk of these interviews 
are from 2008. And when asked about where we are with racism and how we treat other people, it turns out we're still fighting the same problems today. We're desegregated on one hand. And on the other hand, I think we're not. Uh, I can go to, with kids today, I can go to school where they want. Um, but racism is still alive. And unfortunately, I think it always will be. And a good point with that is the laws against illegal immigrants. They're still human beings. I'm not, you know, some of them got over here illegally, but they're here and they're people. And the way the government is handling it, I think is wrong. America is supposed to be the land of milk and honey. You come to America because you can make it here. And I think that's why the immigrants are here, you know, and some of them are making it, you know. Um, if people want to come to the United States to live, work, and be a citizen just like everybody else, there should be a way for them to do it and they shouldn't have to come in illegally. And if they come illegally, they should be treated with respect, you know, and the, a lot of immigrants are here working for little or nothing because they're illegal. And I think employ a lot of uh, companies feel like they can treat them that way because if they don't do their job or whatever, then they can turn them in and they can be taken back to wherever they came from. And I think that's wrong as well. And many do like to point out how far we've come, but in reality, very little has changed. While we fight on against injustice and racism, we stand to learn a lot from our past. I think we learned that uh, we had a lot of brave uh, people who stood up for rights for not just black people, but for the world that lost their lives. Um, and it should not uh, that it should be uh, something that is taught in every school, that all the kids needs to know that what went on in the civil rights movement, uh, it wasn't just blacks, it was whites as well. The, uh, it's a part of history that should never be shoved under the shell, you know, it's something that needs to be talked about and uh, not just Black History Month on a daily basis. It's something that the that needs to be, you know, a, a, a focus in life to let us know where we came from and where we are and where we still need to go. Mary is one of thousands of people whose lives were marked by navigating through a changing culture and society at one of its most progressive and volatile times. When we look at the protests and issues we face today, it seems like the civil rights movement and those battles were from a different time lost to history. The reality is, our parents and grandparents lived through that time. And we find ourselves fighting the same battles, arguing for the same rights, and living through another volatile time. One can only hope that we learn from our past and find a way to continue to press on. 
Systemic is a production of Park Multimedia. Thank you for taking the time to listen and remember, to solve any problem, you have to first acknowledge that it exists. Thank you.